Good morning, church. I know it's been said already multiple times today, but man, it's a beautiful day. This is my favorite time of year by far, and not just because of football. I really enjoy the weather and uh, really enjoy the changing of the leaves. Uh, I don't know, I've, I've come to enjoy as I've uh, gotten a little bit older. Um, we had a little bit of a moment even Friday night realizing that next year uh, we'll have a senior uh, on the football field for his senior night. Uh, but I've enjoyed more and more as I've gotten older the cooler weather in the morning, uh, putting on a hooded sweatshirt, going out for a walk, uh, breathing in the fresh, cool air, feeling it. It's the little things uh, that just remind you of God's grace and God's presence uh, with us. So uh, very thankful uh, to have you here today, that we can worship him together. Um, hoping that I think something might need to get put on my thing back there. Um, there we go. We have a new memory verse for the month of October. We won't say it today, but you can see it on the screen. And uh, we'll say it together next week. It comes from the Gospel of Mark that we are studying together uh, right now. And we continue in that study this morning. I'm going to see if I can get this to work today. There we go. Hopefully we're going to work. We'll see if it behaves. Last week we left off in Mark chapter 2. Today we're going to pick up in Mark chapter 4. And as we left Jesus last week, we left him in the midst of difficulty. In the midst of trouble, trial, even despair. And you know, in this world we talked about the reality of difficulties. The reality of Jesus' earthly ministry was that it was going to be filled with turmoil. And sometimes in the midst of difficulties, we can miss the reality that there is power, that there's truth, that there's beauty, that there's abundant grace, hope, mercy that's alive, active, even visible, that we can participate in and partake of. Every day. Jesus had come. What a thing to celebrate. And as we've seen through our first two lessons in the Gospel of Mark, he was not received kindly. First, he's ushered into the wilderness to face Satan's temptations. Then, where we picked up last week, he was rejected and despised by the most respected and honored religious leaders of his day. Hostility came to mark the earthly ministry of Jesus. But his example was to keep pressing onward and inward with the work that his father had given him to do. And between last week's portion of Mark and this week's study, there are three parables that serve as instruction. We remember the context of this book. This book is being written to an early church that's under the fires and persistent threat of hostility and turmoil from Rome. And the motivation is that they are to keep going. The first parable in between last week and this week's section was the parable of the soils. Where we're reminded that there is going to be varied responses to the message of the gospel. Do we see that today? Are there varied responses still today to the message of the gospel? Absolutely. Absolutely. The second is the parable of the seed. 
where we're reminded that the good news is God's power. And as such, it can produce fruit on its own. It's not dependent on us. God is able to use it outside of us. And then finally, the parable of the mustard seed. Given to motivate perseverance and discipline, God is able to produce an abundantly large harvest from even the smallest of faith or the smallest of investments. Each of these parables serving as an encouragement, a motivation for the church to continue even as they were facing consistent threats from both Rome and from certain sects of Judaism. And so today, we turn to Mark 4. And we're going to read from Mark 4 through Mark 6, not all at once, we'll break it up, where we're going to watch the majesty of God, the majesty of Jesus, alive and at work in the world, while witnessing ourselves various responses that we see, the ones that were testified to, even in the earlier parables. Today's exploration is going to center on four specific miracles that Jesus performs during his earthly ministry. Miracles that demonstrate his magnificence. He's going to show his power over nature, his power over demons, disease, even death. And we're going to discover and confidently affirm that Jesus is perfectly capable of dealing with any force or power that stands in opposition to the plans and purposes of God. We're also going to witness and examine the varied responses to those who personally experienced and were even touched by his ministry while on earth. Answering the question, when faced with the person and work of Jesus, what are the two dominant responses to his ministry? And so if you have your Bibles, you want to take them and turn now to Mark chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 35 of Mark 4, and we're going to go all the way through Mark 6, 6 today in our study of the gospel. Before we read from Mark 4, 35, let's pray and ask God for his help as we study his word together today. Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for the way that you use it for the power that it holds within itself. We're thankful for your spirit, for his presence with us even now. Lord, we know that he is active. We know that he is working, moving in our midst to apply to each and every person exactly what they need today. Some of us are here today, Lord, with a need to be comforted. Lord, we pray that the Spirit would work to bring comfort. Some of us are here today with a need to be convicted. Might the Spirit bring the conviction that is needed. Lord, all of us want to be changed. All of us want to look more like Jesus. And it is through the tools like your scriptures and prayer and the fellowship of the saints, tools that you use to help form us into the image of Christ, might you use your word today to sharpen us, to mold us, that we would look more like him and be pleasing to you. Help us to grow in our love for you and one another in our study today. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 4, starting in 30, uh, verse 35, and we're going to read through verse 
41 to start. Mark 4, 30, 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to his disciples, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The disciples are moving with Jesus toward the uncertain landscape of the Gentiles. That's where they are headed. Many in the crowd are following, as the text suggests, the other boats are going with them into the water. Jesus is taking the opportunity to rest and recover. I had to laugh when I reread this this morning because I stole my wife's pillow last night. <laughs> Jesus carried his own cushion with him. Oh, even Jesus needed to recover. He knows the power he's about to face on the other side. The forces of Satan are awaiting. And as the storm arose, it caused a great stirring among Jesus' disciples. They are frightened. And isn't this the effect of storms in our life? They're frightening. They're unsettling. They did it to followers of Christ back then. They do it still today. They're not always storms of natural forces. Sometimes they're storms in our families. Sometimes they're storms at our jobs, in our schools or churches. The winds and waves of uncertainty bring many of the same emotions that these disciples were feeling in the boat. Teacher! Do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus is not indifferent. He cares. Rousing from his sleep, he speaks peace and stillness to the storm. And immediately the wind stops and there's a great calming over the waters. And just as Jesus saw through the words of the religious leaders right into their hearts... He looks through the words of his disciples into their very hearts. And his words to them should be words that still apply for those of us who are living in storms today. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? This group that was with Jesus, they had seen him do wonderful miracles. They had 
heard him teach with an unparalleled amount of wisdom and authority, yet they were still not living or speaking as if they truly believed. And seeing a bit more clearly now, their response brings them to an even greater question, doesn't it? It's a question that is regarding Jesus' own identity. What do they say? Who then is this? Who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. The Son of Man, who is also the Son of God, has the power to calm the most vicious and violent storms in our lives. He never promises to keep us comfortable. He never promises to keep us free from pain. Some of us know today we know of that pain. Some of us here today know of turmoil. We know of disruption in our lives. We know of discomfort. What he does promise, what he promises his disciples then and what he promises his disciples today is that he will hold us fast and he will give us rest as we abide in him. He does. It's supernatural. Those of you that are walking in this place right now, you know it. People come up to you. They say, how are you doing it? How are you doing today? How are you getting by? How's it going? And you know that it's not of your own strength. You know it cannot be produced from within your own self. You know it's coming from above. He did it then. He does it today. He calms our storms. He cares. The winds and the waves still obey him. And here they are witnessing the miraculous power of Jesus over the forces of nature in the boat. And this is only the beginning. This is only the beginning of Mark, friends. It gets so good. I mean, the whole Bible is good. I love the Gospels. I'm like, like it, in, a little indifferent with the Gospels or a little bit more excited about the Gospels. Um, I don't know the right word to use there, but uh, I think it's because we're right there with Jesus. It feels like you're right there walking through life with him. And it's so exciting to see. He's so powerful. And if nature's power... If the power of the winds and the waves in the, in the boat had provoked the fear of the disciples, imagine how they were about to feel when they were soon going to find themselves face to face with the power of Satan. That's what's coming. Chapter 5, take a look. They come to the other side of the sea. To the country of the Gerasenes. So they are in Gentile territory now. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately, there's that word, theme word in Mark, underline, highlight. Immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. 
He lived among the tombs. Ironic. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs, on the mountains, he was always crying out, cutting himself with stones. And when they saw Jesus, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. As we explore this scene, it's important to observe the utter destruction that demonic influence has on the life of a person. Jesus steps out of the boat. He finds himself immediately confronted with an individual who has been completely deformed by Satan's power. This man lives among death. No one had the power to control or overpower him. Friday night, we played a football game. And this is almost unfathomable to me, but the offensive line of the other team that we played, they averaged 280 pounds. High school boys. Five of them. And like a tight end kind of guy. And when they got close to the goal line, they put the tight end kind of guy in as a running back. About 260 pounds, somewhere in that boat. And on one play down near the goal line, they gave him the ball and he ran into the end zone. And afterwards, after the game, Brighton's like, Dad, I had a hold of his leg. <laughs> I said, well, you had a hold of about 20 pounds of him. <laughs> 240 pounds of him fell into the end zone. <laughs> we just weren't able to subdue them. They were big boys. They were getting off the bus on Friday night, and the guy that parks all, all the cars came over to me. I knew him from uh, my previous church, and he said, hey, uh, there's some pretty big boys that were getting off that bus. I said, yeah, we heard. This, this was a man that provoked fear, overpowering everyone. No one could hold him. He found no rest. Night and day, he's crying out, cutting. He's destroying his own body with rocks. Satan loves to corrupt that which God has created as good. And isn't it interesting that this man knows, somehow, this man knows Jesus is coming for him. Isn't that awesome? He knows it. He sees Jesus from afar, and he runs to him, falling down at his feet before him. What have you to do with me? And then isn't it interesting how he thinks, how his mind's been so warped by Satan, by this demon. Don't torment me. So much revealed in the words of this man. First, his confession he sees and he responds to Jesus 
as Jesus, son of the most high God. Peter responded to Jesus in this very similar manner. And when Peter responded to him in this way, do you remember what Jesus said? Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which art in heaven. Incredible. Later scriptures are going to testify that the demons believe and they shudder before the reality of Jesus. That's in the book of James. And then these demons within this man asking Jesus not to torment them, taking their own behaviors and transposing them onto Jesus as if Jesus would do like they were doing. Demons are creatures of torment. Jesus is of a different nature. No tormentor. Jesus is going to deal with them with absolute and swift justice and righteousness. Come out of this man, you unclean spirit. What is your name? And the unclean spirit reveals his name. You remember what he says? He says, my name is Legion. For his power is represented in the many thousands of demons who have possessed this unfortunate man. And at the authority of the words of Jesus, even the forces who were most turned against him, opposed to him, are compelled to obey. Now how about the pigs? We're a farming community. We know a little bit about pigs, right? Swine, big. I've heard they're kind of stubborn. I've heard it's hard to get a big pig to move someplace and go somewhere that he just doesn't want to go and doesn't want to be moved. They're strong. Did you ever try to pick up a pig and move it? I mean, I've watched football players do pig chases and try to grab hold of pigs like baby little pigs. That, it takes everything they got. The pigs are strong. The demons see the pigs grazing on the hillside. They ask Jesus to send them into the pigs. Jesus gives them permission. They come out of the man. They enter the pigs. The pigs rush down the bank and are drowned. Once again, highlighting the destructive nature of demons, of Satan. But there's something that's revealed in this passage. Something that challenges me as I read it. And that is the priorities of the people who lived in this region. You see, the ministry of Jesus in this area ends up costing this community quite a bit of money. How much are 2,000 pigs worth? How much are 2,000 pigs worth today? Imagine back then. That's an awful lot of money. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. 
About 440,000 a day. Yeah. See, I knew living in an agriculture community is great when you're reading the Gospels. Just love it. 440,000 a day, much, much more probably back then. You see, this economic loss, it's quickly realized by the herdsmen and the people of the town. Jesus did a great thing, but for what? For who? For that guy? Really? The guy that's been so destructive, so disruptive, so weird, provoking great fear among all of our people. The guy that no one could shackle, no one could contain, no one could control. And now all of a sudden, because of the words of Jesus, you mean to tell me that he's really set free. And for what? I mean, are we really going to trade all the fortunes of our people and these 2,000 swine for the life of this one man? Jesus did. Verse 17. They began to beg, beg. Jesus to depart from their region. And Jesus doesn't fight. Verse 18, he gets into the boat. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might go with him. Nobody likes me around here, Jesus. I can't understand why. Let me go with you. Jesus said, no. Go home to your friends. Friends. Did this man have a friend left? Tell him how much the Lord has done for you. And how he had mercy on you. And he went away. And began to proclaim in the Decapolis, the region of the ten cities in that area, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Jesus does not permit the man to leave his presence or the presence of the people who knew him. His presence would be a continual reminder of Jesus' power over the forces of Satan. And the message that Jesus tells him to proclaim is the good news of what God has done for him and how he had received and experienced the great mercy of Jesus. This is the exact message he would proclaim. Jesus would be glorified. The people would marvel at his power and see the utter and complete transformation of this man over and over and over again. As God's work took effect in his life. For the church under the threat of persecution and scrutiny. And for the individual follower of Jesus facing the same. It should be an incredibly comforting, even life-giving reality for us to recognize. That the power of Jesus is far greater than the forces of evil in this world. 
Jesus has the power to break the shackles of sin and shame. To free us. To set us free. He asks us to believe it. And for our eyes, our lives to shine as a testimony to that belief. And soon it's going to be revealed in the text that Jesus has power not just over the wind and the waves, not just over Satan, but also over disease and death. Continue on, look at verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. Look at all the people falling at Jesus' feet. And implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. Okay, Jesus. Now we're rolling. We're moving. We calm the wind and the waves. We cast out the demon. Heal this man. Now we're going to go help this little girl. Jairus is the ruler of a synagogue. The synagogues harbored the authority, the words, and the teachings of the religious leaders of those days. The same religious leaders that had just chastised, interrogated, criticized many aspects of Jesus' ministry. Here comes Jairus. He's coming with sincerity. He's falling at the feet of Jesus. It's a posture of humility and sincerity. A posture of submission. It's a posture of great faith in these texts. It may be the posture that most identifies with great faith. On our knees. We bow our heads and our hearts before our Lord as a way of symbolizing this posture today. Some of us still practice this posture of prayer in our homes or even in church on our knees as a visible representation of this type of submission and humility before our Lord. Jairus seeks compassion. He seeks mercy. He seeks healing. He speaks in a way that reveals his faith. His faith that Jesus can do what he's asking. And he himself goes along with Jesus to see what he will do and watch what happens. Along the way, there's a bit of a detour. Now imagine, there's a lot going on here we need to unpack. There's this desperation of this man whose daughter is near the point of death. And his desperation is now disrupted by the suffering of another person that has a terrible physical condition. Verses 25 to 34 give us insight to what's happening here. There's a woman who is bleeding. Jairus believed that Jesus, if he would just touch his daughter, that his daughter could be made well. The woman who had bled for 12 years believed that if she could just touch the hem of Jesus' garment, she would be healed. Both were hungering for a touch of the Messiah. Both believed he was enough. Both trusted. Both were acting in accordance with their faith. And we will see that both 
will be rewarded. All of this sounds good, but still, there are points of conflict that exist for Jairus in this account. Well, first, this may seem to be a frivolous detour on the way to this time-sensitive need of healing his daughter. But second, we cannot miss, Jairus is a synagogue ruler. He would have known that this woman, with constant bleeding, touching another person, would make that person unclean. Jairus' world's about to be turned upside down in many ways. For the woman, if I could only touch his clothes, I will be healed. She touches her, his cloak, and her bleeding, which had persisted for 12 years of her life, ceases. Jesus knows someone has touched him. He feels the power leave his body. Crowds had been surrounding him. The people were thronging about. Shoulders had to be brushing up against him. But something was different about the touch from this woman. And then again in verse 33, the woman with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, comes and falls down before him and tells him the whole truth. She has to respond with the whole truth. She has to let Jesus know that she was the one who had touched him. Had she just made the Messiah unclean? Think about how this issue disrupted this woman's day-to-day life. Anything she touched in her house, any seat that she sat on, would have been declared unclean. No one else would have been allowed to sit on it. Could you imagine living with this woman? Was she married? Could she have even been married? We don't know. But if she was, could you imagine how difficult it was for the people who lived with her? How completely and utterly disruptive this was. And then to just touch Jesus, people would have been avoiding this woman trying to get as far away from her as possible so that they would not be made unclean. Oh, how brave. The braveness of this woman. She doesn't make the Messiah unclean. This is the testimony of Jesus. And this is an incredibly life-changing lesson for Jairus, the synagogue leader, who's with his daughter's healer. When Jesus is present, that which is unclean can come into his presence, interact with him, even to the point of touching him, and by his power, they can be changed, healed, transformed. Our uncleanliness does not corrupt the purity or the holiness of Jesus. Rather, he has the power 
He has the right, the authority, the compassion, the mercy, and the love to make us whole and healed. The curse of the law falls silent. Its judgments against us rendered ineffective when confronted with the presence and the power of Jesus. I love how he responds to the woman. This is Jesus' pattern and testimony in the Gospels. He responds so gently and kindly to the people who would have been considered the most outcast and most unclean of his day. What does he say? Daughter. Daughter. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And be healed of your disease. Hmm. For those who will be humbled enough to bow. Falling at the feet of Jesus. In a spirit of confession and repentance. There will be healing. There will be abundant eternal life. That is the healing that we receive. The gift. Of eternal life. It's almost like the needs of Jairus' daughter were put on pause here. Remember that we said one of the, the realities of Mark's gospel is when it slows down, it slows down with great purpose. Well, here it slowed down. And it slowed down with the purpose for us to see this. In fact, all of the gospel accounts include when they include this scene, they include this scene with Jesus stopping to heal the woman who's bleeding in the middle. Jesus is never on accident, friends. He's always on purpose. And so there's great purpose in this healing. Jairus then, in, in some ways, becomes an example for us regarding what it looks like to wait on the Lord. To wait on the Lord with patience, with confident hope, even when the circumstances in our life appear dark and desperate and hopeless. Imagine Jairus having to wait while Jesus cares for this woman. What an important and valuable lesson regarding Jesus and his ministry in church. It's a valuable reminder for us today that this same power is alive and active in those who identify as disciples of Jesus now. And as we continue this narrative, what happens next in verses 35 and 36, it can come as a shock. It can even come as an utter disappointment. If this is your first time reading, prepare. While he was still speaking, verse 35, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Love that. The words coming from...
from those who were at the synagogue, they feel void of goodness and void of hope. And Jesus is already anticipating how Jairus might respond and looks right at him with these steadfast words filled with hope. Do not fear, only believe. Verse 37, and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Only the closest disciples got to go with Jesus on this one. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when they entered, he said to them, why are you making commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went into where the child was, 41, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talita kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl got up and began walking immediately. There's that word again. She was 12. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Jesus walks into a desperate and hopeless situation His physical presence is highlighted here as he takes the hand of this little girl. And with the precious words of hope, words of life, he speaks her language. This is the same God. The same God that when the situations and circumstances of the Israelites in the Old Testament became most bleak and most difficult, when they were most tormented by their enemies, when they had been taken into captivity, when they had been oppressed, when they had been destroyed and afflicted in the most terrible ways, there was often a promise that would come, a word that they would hear, a line that you can find in the Old Testament. For I am the Lord your God, the one who takes hold of your right hand, who says to you, do not be afraid, I'm helping you. This is our unchanging God in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and today. He's helping. In some ancient Jewish literature, there's a tradition that teaches uh, that the words that Jesus uses here in Aramaic were words that were often used with little children. In that day, they would have been, in other words, they would have been common words that they would hear from their parents spoken to them. How beautiful that Jesus might not only spoken her language, but spoken words that would have been comforting to her to give her life. Similar words will later be spoken by one of the disciples who were with Jesus. And you have to wonder if he just followed the example of his Lord. Because Peter is with Jesus in this account, and in Acts 9.40, Jesus 
uh, Peter is present again, and God works mightily through him to restore life to Dorcas, and he speaks almost the exact same phrase. The girl was 12 years old. The woman who was bleeding had been bleeding as long as that little girl had been alive. 12 years. For a woman whose family was separated by disease, by her bleeding, there was restoration in the healing touch of Jesus. For a child and a family that was separated by death, there was restoration, resurrection power in the touch and the words of Jesus. Through Jesus, the things that disease and death affect and destroy here on earth will one day be restored and reconciled by his power in his presence. He raises up life today. He does it still today. If you sit here today and you say, I follow Jesus, he's my Lord and Savior, you've experienced one resurrection already. The Bible says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead. Resurrection. For those who die in the Lord here on earth, another resurrection is promised. He's conquered death. It's the power he has. He promises life. These are powerful, transformative, miraculous, life-changing events in the earthly ministry of Jesus. Events that have been written and recorded so that we might believe and find life in his name. He's demonstrating his power and authority over nature, over demons, over disease, over death. And don't we feel like the people should be rejoicing? This is parade season. We open Mark chapter 6. There ought to be parades everywhere. Banners and streamers and trumpets. Hallelujah. Look at what Messiah is doing on earth. It's exciting. It's invigorating. The Lord has come. Oh, no. Chapter 6. He went away and from there came into his own hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did, these man, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters right here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown, among his relatives, 
and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there. He, read that line. I'm not going to explain it. Just read it. It's a shocker. You go home and wrestle with that. He could do no mighty work there. Except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. All that he had done, the life that he had given, the restoration, the healing, the rest, the calming of the storms, they still did not believe. Jesus is the rejected restorer. The response of his own people contrasted with the response of Jairus and the response of the woman with the bleeding. And in verse 4, don't we hear the old colloquialism? Familiarity breeds contempt. And those who rejected would come to represent the spiritual blindness of many who would witness the ministry of Jesus yet still deny him as the Messiah. And as it turns out, a heart must be transformed before eyes are ready to see and ears are ready to hear and receive the good news of Jesus. And as our team comes and we close today, I might ask, has your heart been transformed? Have you seen? Have you heard? Have you tasted of the faith, hope, and love found in Jesus alone? Have you received the eternal joy of restoration and reconciliation that comes only through faith? Friends, there were two dominant responses to Jesus' ministry in the text today. The first is belief. The woman believed. Jairus believed. Many of the disciples believed. The second is unbelief. Today is a great day to not be like the Nazarenes. To not be in unbelief. Because Jesus is real. What we're reading in Mark really happened. And he will come again. Today would be a great day to repent of our rejection of his kind and patient offer of eternal life. To confess that he is Messiah, Lord and Savior. And to begin following his life-giving ways and words right now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of Jesus in the text today. Thank you for the encouragement for the church that though we face trial, though we face turmoil and hardship, that we can continue knowing that the same power that conquered the grave is now alive in each and every one of us who call ourselves children of God through Jesus. Thank you that he demonstrated power over nature. He didn't have to. He demonstrated power over disease, 
over demons, over death. Thank you that he was victorious. And we give you honor and praise for calling us overwhelming conquerors with him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.